We will never leave you, even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I, I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes, as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the son. This is all I... All I can send you. Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Superman Retrospective Series. Hi. Superman? That's me. From 1978 Superman, all the way through 2016's Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Garrett. How can one man be so square and so delicious? Matt. I'm long past saving. And Adam. You diseased maniac. We'll look at all the Kryptonian Sun's cinematic adventures. The problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want one. Was Richard Donner's vision of Superman deserving of its iconic reputation? Easy, miss. I've got you. You, you've got me! Who's got you?! Superman returns as bad as it's reputed to be. Hey, you know something? You're a real pain in the neck. What about 1984's Supergirl? Well, we really better talk. Find out the answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. This order's to go. Supergirl, released November 21st, 1984. Budget on this was $35 million. Box office, $14.3 million. Ouch. And this was directed by Janice Swalk. We'll be talking about him again when we get to Jaws. But for now, we're going to talk about him with Supergirl. Oh, Supergirl. After Superman 3 had come out and didn't really do that well, the Salkinds thought they'd take a different approach. Yes, this is still the Salkinds who own this property. And so they decided to go for a different demographic. And as you heard in the box office totals, in 1984, it did not work. Adam, as the gentleman who grew up the same time as me, do you remember that this even being released? 
man, not only do I remember it being released, I remember it being something in the house that we were going to go see. Not only that, but it came out on my birthday. <laughs> oh, shit, that's right. Yep. So this is a movie that, it's amazing looking back at my childhood now and realizing that, you know, my dad was a closeted geek based on all the things that I saw with him. But this is one that I remember the trailers. I remember going to see it. And I can't remember much about the movie itself until I rewatched it for this. But I remember it was something that we were definitely going to go see. It was going to be a theatrical experience for you. For sure. Man. Yeah, you know what? I This was one of those things that I don't even remember the release as a kid. But when we were kids, Adam, we'd go to the video store and we'd see boxes and we'd say, oh, let's get that. Mm-hmm. That's how I discovered it. Like, I rented it as a child. I was out. My mom was like, okay, you can pick out one one movie. And this was the movie I picked out for that night. I was just like... Where are we going with this now, you know? like, And, of course, we had Superman 4 right after, which we talked about back when we did the original Superman series. Goudreau, how'd you hear about 1984 Supergirl, sir? Uh, because I'm a completionist like you. And that, was, <laughs> and that was one of those instances where I regretted it to the fullest extent, to the point where it took me three sit-downs to finish it on my first viewing. Batman and Robin gets derided partially and justifiably so as being the worst comic book movie of all time. In the Pantheon of DC, I thought after watching this for the first time, it gave Batman and Robin a run for its money. Holy shit. Yeah, I did not respond to this well at all when I first saw it. But my knowledge of Supergirl is limited to crossovers and the CW show, so I can't really say I'm a fan. Yeah, let's talk about that. So when I was at work and I mentioned that I was recording today and one of the dudes was like, oh, what are you recording? I said, we're going to be doing Supergirl. And the guy's like, oh, you guys are doing TV shows now? He had no idea there was a 1984 movie of this. (laughs) Let's talk about the comics. Now, around what time did Supergirl come into existence, Adam? Oh, God damn it. Uh, Much later, but that's... That's been one of the sticky issues that's been going on with the Siegel and Schuster estate is that after the war... Uh, World War II and them splitting up, DC decided that they were going to take that Superman shield and put it on whatever they could. Enough that, I believe it was Jerry Siegel that created Superboy, and DC went, no, we're going to own that too. There's been a lot of contention with rights, more so with the Super family than almost anything. And it really comes down to legalities, lawsuits, work for hire, and those type of things. I mean, it, it technically she came out in Action Comics, you know, so there is that direct Superman initial connection. And it wasn't until late 50s, I want to say 57, 59. So, I mean, she was a much later introduction. And the creators of Superman and Superboy have no legal recourse to Supergirl, which is really kind of screwed up. But it was a late 50s type of creation, really, before we got, like, right as we were getting into the swing in 60s. Hmm. All right, boys, turn on your way back machines, because way back when we reviewed Superman 3, if you'll recall, one of the ideas for that film was that we talked about that was very close to getting made involved Supergirl and Brainiac, which was supposed to set up this film. Alexander Salkine was even in the press when Superman 3 was coming out, saying, stay tuned, we have Supergirl in the works. Instead, we got what we got with Superman 3. Go back and listen to that podcast. I believe it's one of our best. They had to come up with a new story for their planned Supergirl film. So they brought in David O'Dell 
Matt, we've discussed the work of David O'Dell before. Have we? Yes, because we did a movie with Logan called The Dark Crystal. Um, he was one of the main screenwriters of that. And stay tuned, because if Matt gets his wish, we'll also talk about his scripted canon masterpiece, Masters of the Universe. So There's no, yeah. if, there's no if in that statement. It's what. <laughs> <laughs> they went with Janice Swark, which was actually a recommendation of Christopher Reeve when they were talking about directors to bring in for this. And Christopher Reeve had just worked with this gentleman on a movie called Somewhere in Time, which is a movie I watched for the first time probably about five, six years ago. Is a wonderful, wonderful film. It's a great film. But I don't know why you bring in someone like him to two supergirl i mean he did hold the jaws 2 production together we'll we'll talk about that in a few years when we get to jaws but matt would you imagine bringing in a director like that who's done somewhere in time to do supergirl what, what do you think the thinking was behind that i question whether any thought was in put into this movie whatsoever because this feels like one of those movies as i sat there and watched it again for the first time since my initial three-pronged attempt viewing it's a good thing this was the 80s because this is one of those movies where i think the co the co-writer on it should have been cocaine because so much of this feels like they read a bunch of comics from every era up to this point but we were not yet at the point where we got stuff like dark knight returns where it was okay for comics to be edgy i mean watchmen was around this time but it feels like they they looked at the the heyday and said oh we want to try and make a lighthearted romp in the same way that the the first reeve movie was and most of the second is depending on which cut you're viewing but the director really didn't seem like he had any sort of vision for what this was going to be Say what you want about Richard Lester, and I said my piece quite emphatically on Superman 3. He had a take, and the studio ran with it. I get the sense that nobody in this production cared about quality control as much as, let's just try to crank this out. But having said that, I don't think this is one of those things that comes off as, you know, as haphazard as some other things. Because remember, this is sort of the first female-driven superhero film 20 years before Catwoman and about 30-plus years before Wonder Woman. So they they were in uncharted waters at that point, but I guess nobody was wearing a life jacket. Yeah, now Donner did give Zwart some technical advice on this film when he was asking for help on it, and I wonder if that advice was to the extent of stay the fuck away from the Salkinds if you know what's good for you. Now, as you can imagine, Helen Slater wasn't who the studio wanted to play Supergirl. They wanted an actress by the name of Brooke Shields. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. But not only is she very tall for the part, she's six foot. The Sockheims decided they, and we're going to be saying this a lot in this review, they wanted to replicate the success and formula of that first Donner film. So they went with the completely unknown Helen Slater, a decision we'll definitely discuss. Now, you may ask, where's Christopher Reeve in all this? He's at home. Well, Washington is tight. <laughs> Reeve was indeed slated to have a cameo in the film as he was supposed to rescue her in the beginning and start teaching her how to handle her powers. A storyline we see a lot in Smallville, actually. But I'm not sure if it was all that happened with Superman 3, he was burned out on Superman, or if he was just sick of working with the Salkinds in general, but he bowed out of that commitment pretty quickly. I think he looked at the work print and said, fuck that. I don't know if Reeves' presence would have helped or hurt this production. I'll, I'll say this, not having him here definitely gives us its own identity. It does, and I think... See, it, it's tough, because would it have tied into those original ones more? Yes. Would it have been a 
better move. I don't know. I think it would have just made this film feel like a spinoff as opposed to feeling like its own thing. But let's remember, I mean, Christopher Reeve had his own demands for three, didn't give a flying flip about four. I mean, he after Superman 2, his care for the character dropped off precipitously until kind of later on in life. So as much as he's amazing what he did, he was kind of over wearing the S. Well, as we mentioned when we did Superman 4, I think his heart was definitely in the right place when it came to 4. I just think it didn't have the right people or money behind it to do what he wanted it to do. Yeah. But I definitely get what you're saying. All right, boys, that's all the preamble I have. We have quite the plot to get through. (laughs) What do you guys say? We start diving into Supergirl. Now, we get those moving through the sky, Sal Kine's movie credits, and the beginning stages of a theme, this time done by Jerry Goldsmith. Now, those who remember when we reviewed those Donner films earlier this year, they remember that Goldsmith was actually Donner's first choice to do the score for that film because he had just won the Oscar for doing the Omen score, which Donner had also directed. Imagine that, a horror score winning best score. (laughs) Wow. But Goldsmith got busy, couldn't do it. Apparently he wasn't busy here in 1984, but I'll go ahead and say I feel this is a decent, hummable theme. It doesn't have the power of John Williams, but I'll spoil this. Like a lot of this movie, I'm going to defend it. For what it's trying to do, build a theme around this female superhero, I think it gets the job done. I think it's serviceable at best, but I'm distracted by these kind of classics, all kind opening credits that it seemed like took up 70% of the budget just to do this opening couple minutes. One million dollars was what this was these credits wow, cost. So, One million dollars. So Brando credits. Is what these yep. are. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm struck right off the bat that once again, your don't come at me, folks. Your titular character is not your top build for a super movie again, which is just hilarious. Don't forget, we're replicating that first film. Yep. He wasn't in that first film either. I think I think my enthusiasm got left in the Phantom Zone right from these credits. Because it lets you know that this movie is trying really hard to evoke what had come before it, but the talent wasn't there to execute it. And the talent that was there discovered the liquor cabinet, and that's all they cared about. <laughs> or at least one member of this cast discovered it. We open up with some familiar sound effects as we're seeing a different Kryptonian community called Argo City. Now, the people in this place apparently listened to Jor-El and got the hell out before the Krypton exploded. And they're transported to another pocket of trans-dimensional space called Inner Space, which I guess this is a prequel. I said, God dang it, you beat me to the <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I stepped right on that Even one. from here, it feels like they went to the, this is the true value equivalent of Krypton. Because, boy, this set looks a hell of a lot cheaper than the ones you saw in the first Donner movie. They do. Now, comic nerds. Is Argo City or any of this represented in the comic, or is this just made up for the film? Yes, and I don't know if it came afterwards and they retconned it, but yes, Argo City is definitely a comic city that exists that way. And I think in the decades since, it's been one that has continuously been... It's not like the fabled city of Kandor with Brainiac, but it has been a constant Brainiac attack type city. Now, I'm going to say, since we're right here in the city, I like this look for Krypton. I feel like this is a city. I actually really like the way this looks on the interiors. It's not that diamond, snowy, hoth-looking city, but I like the way it looks inside here. 
Yeah, I'm with Adam. I like this as well. We're seeing some kind of class taking place. Now, how old is Kara supposed to be here? I don't know, but also, why is there a schoolroom that looks like an outtake from Village of the Damned? Because they're all <laughs> they're all freaking blonde-haired, blue-eyed. <laughs> she wanders to Zoltar, played by Marlon Brando. Oh, I'm sorry. Lawrence of Arabia's own Peter O'Toole. Now, he was coming off his comeback from a couple years before in a little film called Pygmalion. There is someone here going through the motions, but I don't think O'Toole is, though you can tell he kind of has that what-am-I-doing-here look, especially when he has to talk to five-year-old acting Supergirl here. (laughs) But I like Peter O'Toole in this. The motions he was making included stumbling, slurring his speech, and having no idea what he was pointing at, because I am convinced he downed a fifth of vodka before every single take. It's very entertaining to watch. But this goes in the same category as, like, Dennis Hopper and Super Mario, where it, it, it's kind of, on one hand, it's hysterical, but it also shows that dignity is not above a paycheck. And it's really weird, he's barely in the movie, which is why he gets the and blank credit. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I, I'm going to say right off the bat, the tone of this movie, it has no idea what it wants to be. At least that I will definitely agree the with. The third one, as much as I don't like it, they picked a lane and they predominantly stuck with it. Here... It is every kind of story, but because of that, there's no focus, and I feel like it's disorienting from scene to scene. I'm distracted by two, uh, yeah, two things throughout this entire opening. Peter O'Toole is obviously, um, yeah, it's I don't I don't think he even knows who he's delivering lines to half the time. But I appreciate that apparently Argo City goes to the George Lucas thought process of we don't wear bras in space. Because this entire opening, all I can think is, oh my god, what kind of movie are we... Because it's just so painfully obvious, and it's mm-hmm. distracting to me as I'm watching this opening that it's just every woman of age walking through, which Supergirl better be 18, but so everybody walking through frame that's a female is utterly braless, and these clothes are designed to, I, I guess, get you to pay attention to the scene. She had just turned 19 okay. when they started. Yeah, remember, this is a Salkind production, not a Weinstein production. <laughs> yep. I know she had just graduated the fame college out of New York at that time. All right, so we mentioned her. Let's talk about Helen Slater a little bit. I think she is a very warm presence, but her line deliveries. Holy shit. She has a wide-eyed perspective, which is good for a film trying to appeal to young girls, but is it just me or is she just try- playing it a little too naive? Matt? Well, she sounds like she's talking to a child in every scene. That she's mm-hmm. I guess this is what Gal Gadot used as inspiration for Wonder Woman. Because, yeah, there's that oh. wide-eyed, woeful ignorance. She's not that bad. Uh, I think she's worse. Warm presence, absolutely. So when I think Supergirl, I think of confidence. And I also think of... And I know partially this is an origin story. I do think she has to be as symbolic as Superman is. And you really get that in the, the CW show. But you really don't get that here. I know that they were hamstrung by not having Christopher Reeve, but as far as the depiction of Supergirl, I mean, it's better than what they did in The Flash, but I'm not going to sit here and call it good. I give it points for being there early, but they probably should have done their homework before showing up for the test. What I get from her, it's, I feel like she's playing it like a 13-year-old girl, not an 18-year-old woman. And I get very, very much, and this is not a compliment, I feel like I'm watching Daryl Hannah and Splash. You know, it's that that same kind of feel, and I don't mean that as a complimentary way for the actress. You know, I... eh. And it's... I don't think that the director really had any desire to direct the actors on 
the screen, one or two of the females <laughs> don't take direction whatsoever. So I think maybe he was just there to call action cut, and that's about it. And Helen Slater, by the way, is a wonderful person. I, I've met her at cons. It's funny how she's embraced this movie. She she always smiles and will sign anything you put in front of her that has to do with this movie. Unlike another person we'll be talking about here in a bit, who even who refused to even acknowledge this movie existed. <laughs> Now, Zaltar tells Kara that he was thinking about leaving Argo City for Saturn, and he convinces Kara to use her imagination. We then see the MacGuffin for this movie, the Omega Hedron, which Zaltar promises he didn't steal, he's just borrowing it. Zaltar says that the Omega Hedron cannot create life, just the illusion of life. Alright, I'm going to say it, and not everyone's going to like this. This must be the movie that Patty Jenkins watched before she made Wonder Woman 1984. Because mm. uh, this whole movie reminded me so much of that, right down to the fact that part of the impetus for the story is about rape. That when, is a damn valid point. <laughs> like, you got a magical device, you've got people going after people's free will in the name of sex later on. It is too cartoony for its own good. And I, and I just hate, as a storytelling device, big mystical MacGuffins that can do whatever the plot wants it to, especially in superhero movies. Certain Marvel movies fall into this, like that that second Thor movie with the magic Kool-Aid. This is a trope I am sick of. And yeah, this movie, I'm not on board with it to start at all. Man, this thing just, I'm laughing from the second this thing is introduced to it getting kicked around to what happens to the freaking Japanese paper walls of Argo City here in a moment. Like, this thing gets pretty slapsticky cartoony really quick. And I'm with Matt. These type of just random throw a name at it type of device to follow that does I think this thing has got like 10 different designs that it does throughout the course of this film 10 different things it does it's man this thing is ill-defined because it's defined to do everything Zaltar then gives her a wand and sends her on her way as he tells her mom that she has enough responsibilities including Kara and reveals that he's going to Venus we see a butterfly get made and I like the fact that this is a story about a girl doing girly things. The fact that this little thing causes the havoc it does, especially for around the time we had Arnold doing one-liners and Stallone arm wrestling, is kind of refreshing. And Matt, you touched on this earlier. This is really the first female-driven superhero we film we actually got. Now, Wonder Woman did come out in the 70s, but uh, the TV show. But this, this was the first female-driven superhero movie, wasn't it? Yep. But just because you're the first doesn't mean you're the best. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I didn't even say it was the best. I'm just saying for the time that it was out and you had all the masculinity that you can handle, it's it's just kind of refreshing that this isn't Superman. This is Supergirl, and that's exactly what we're going to be getting here. She also loses the Omega Hedron, which is what the city needs to survive. Bazaltar points to the binary shoot as a way that they can get it back. We cut back to Laura as she gets stuck in a ship and taken out. She's not as distraught as everyone else, though, as Kara herself seems to be having a blast. And Zoltar assures Mia Farrell, by the way, in a nice little cameo, I didn't even even know that she was in this movie, that she'll be safe. Zoltar also says that he must be sent to the Phantom Zone. So we're going to be expand the mythology a bit. In those Superman movies, we're like, okay, they're behind this glass, but what's actually going on in that glass? Well, we're going to find out in this, aren't we, Adam? We are. I'd forgotten that we do, but yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. And in the Phantom Zone, there's bars on every corner. We're seeing some pretty bad effects as Kara passes through the binary shoot. All right. We then meet <laughs> Serena, played by Faye Dunaway, and her boyfriend Nigel, played by Peter Cook. 
Now, a couple things about these two. One, Dunaway was a hire done by one of the assistants to the producers, done as the quote-unquote Gene Hackman villain of the film. And apparently, to the surprise of no one, she was an absolute bitch on this set. Peter Cook, in particular, pushed for her to get fired. Thing is, she was coming off perhaps the campiest, worst performance she'd ever done, where she just went all out in a bad way, a movie called Mommy Dearest. Mm -hmm. And this was only mere years after she was respected in Network, a movie I watched for the first time just a few years ago and was shocked at how good it is, as is she. But she's the one who, even though her name is above the title, she seemed to have had zero memory of ever doing this film. Oh, my God. She she is in a different movie than everybody else, and I don't know if she knows what she's in. You know what? Faye Dunaway's in the Faye Dunaway movie starring Faye Dunaway. I mean, she comes across like she wants nothing to do with anybody else, and not just as a character, but, man, she is unlikable throughout this entire thing. She's kind of all over the place, and I don't understand this character. Like, what they decide to do, like who she is, what she wants, and then halfway through this movie the change and what this film delves into and what it becomes is freaking ridiculous. But she's unlikable here right away, but she understands when this Pokeball shows up, she understands everything about it inside of like 30 seconds. It's, it's kind of ridiculous the way this thing just takes off sprinting. Adam, you and I were talking about the Inside of You interview with Helen Slater, and I don't know if you listened to it. Did you listen to it, Adam? I've listened to about half of it. Yeah, she mentions that because Rosenbaum did ask her, you know, I mean, how was Faye Dunaway on the set? We have all heard the stories. Everybody has a fucking Faye Dunaway story. And what Helen Slater said was she wasn't mean to her. She was actually really nice to her. But all she really remembers is she was always concerned about the lighting because she was in her 40s at this point and she was so concerned about the lines on her face and everything coming out while they were shooting this film. And she was starting to really get that whole I'm getting too old for Hollywood kind of thing and my star is fading pretty fast. She was I mean between you know you look at things that she did I mean she was the 70s mm-hmm. star for things like Bonnie and Clyde Thomas Crown Affair then Thomas Crown Affair again you know Chinatown so what she was in was amazing movies but she has never been looked at as anything other than pardon me but just a flaming bitch. Yeah. I want whatever she was having on this production cuz I guess she thought she was making Hocus Pocus before Hocus Pocus ever got made. Because <laughs> that's, that's kind of what this was between her and her other uh, partner we'll talk about shortly. I, I don't understand the rationale of, of making the villains of this movie part of a coven. Because, like, witchcraft, like, was not the fucking thing in the 80s. Like, no. Like, the most you got was stuff like Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. But, but, like, th- this is... Much like Superman 3 with, with the computer stuff, I'm like, all right, at least that you could say, well, we tried to do Brainiac and just didn't have the money. Here, were they trying to do the same thing with Mr. Mixius Pidlick? You know, because mm-hmm. they tried that for Superman 3, and, you know, ironically, they tried to get Dudley Moore, but instead they got Peter Cook in this, who was his longtime partner. I feel like this is just holdovers from previous ideas they've had, but don't implement them well. What I equated this to was a 80s version of a fairy tale. And what I mean by that is Faye Dunaway is the witch and Supergirl is the princess. And we have a prince that we're going to introduce here in a little bit. But that, I mean, 
Look, that's that was the 80s way of telling stories. We still do that today, where we recycle stories over and over. We regurgitate them over and over. And then I don't really have a problem with her being a quote-unquote witch because of the tale that they're telling here. You know what? When you put it that way, this is Snow White and the Huntsman with a cape. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the same thing. Wow. Yeah. Good point. Nigel tells Serena the Witch that it takes lifetimes to earn the art of black magic, just as he holds that Omega Hedron, and she decides that she's she's done with Nigel, who says if it wasn't for him, she'd be reading Leaves in Tahoe. While in the background, we're hearing that Superman is on a peace mission several trillion light years away. Yeah, that's their way. That's their way of saying don't expect Superman at all. No. Meanwhile, Supergirl has arrived. From under oh, oh, okay. I the water. Talk about this. All right. <laughs> All right. So I'm convinced they found a piece of driftwood at that set, and literally took a picture of Helen Slater, and just lifted it out of the water because you can see the fucking string they use <laughs> when, when she emerges. This movie, in parts, looks as cheap and haphazardly made as Superman Four does. Well, it did cost thirty five million, which is. Well, that's about, what, $15 million more than what Superman 4 was, so interesting. Wow. This is where I get my splash analogy for coming out of the water right here. But, yeah, um, I do agree. I, I think they actually did um, make a, like a poster cutout, um, wood cutout, and pull it out of the water. I believe that is actually what they did. So she emerges from the water without getting wet. <laughs> she crushes a rock and picks a flower. Very girly, kind of hippie-ish can fly and she does it much more elegantly than reeve ever did i you know what you guys just made fun of the flying earlier i like her flying over trees and horses and the water i actually like the fact that she's enjoying flying you know she's having fun doing this this is very girly but god damn it i'm liking it adam i like this part of her I, one it makes no sense there's no explanation of earth's yellow sun and all that yada yada but for her to be able just to come and do her freaking magic outfit change, um, but to just be able to suddenly, yeah, fly and have no care in the world, not, she doesn't question how or why or anything behind it, but it's a nice moment. It's a, you know, it slows okay. down for a second. And yeah, it's a, you know, girl flying through the flowers type of thing. And I don't mind it. I think it's actually a nice little moment here. Can fly, which is fine, but she has no understanding of proximity later on. Because she can fly over trees here, but almost drop kicks Hart Buckner from behind. Uh, she lifts off the ground. It's fine. I, I'm a sucker for self-discovery in superhero movies. It's always good for me. I guess she learned all this information in that pod. Yeah. <laughs> that, she, that, that went under the water before she came out of it? Yeah, I agree. Meanwhile, Serena has arrived and has enrolled the services of the one person who knows what movie they're in, <laughs> Bianca. <laughs> I love this fucking She's character. She's at least having some fun with it. Like She she knows she's that she the is best, in a D-level superhero spoof, and she's having a ball. Well, she's like the Ned Beatty character done well. Yeah. That's my read on it. We then get a scene I had completely forgotten about as Supergirl encounters two dudes who, well, try taking advantage of her. Oh boy, you know, you're having a ball, you're watching this girl learn to fly and do all the things she's doing. Then she comes down and we get almost a rape here. This is fucking crazy for a 1984 movie made for kids. Yeah, it's surprising that they included this. And it's also surprising, I don't know, maybe how accurate mm -hmm. it would be. 
Like it's it's not comfortable to watch, but it's also not it, it's not far fetched. I think it has its place. I think it could have been done better, but I think it's hard to do this type of movie without at least some allusions to that. And then based around the fact that this the rest of this movie is about two women trying to drug and steal a man, it's amazing how that flips. Mm-hmm. It's surprising that they don't. It's not the fact they insinuate it. It's fully. It's fully going to happen if she did not possess superpowers. Uh, so I'm surprised that they went as far as they did. And what do you um, her skirt? This movie's kind of it's got this gross undercurrent throughout all of it. In the same way that Wonder Woman 1984 does with all the with the intricate, you know, because the plots are very similar when you when you get down to it. And I and I think it it for a movie that's priding itself on being very wholesome, I do think there are instances where it goes a bit too far in a way that even the refilms did not. The director has a read on it where he says that he wanted a moment where she realizes that this isn't exactly a fairy tale land that she thought it was. I get that, but again, I think there are different ways of saying, of doing it than having these two dudes just try to take full advantage of her. And like you said, Matt, if he didn't have superpowers, this chick was going to get raped for sure. Yeah, but these guys are also very dumb because she lifts one of them up by the chin and they still try to proceed. Well, yeah. Meanwhile, Serena and Nigel, they cause havoc at, what, a witch convention? I didn't know there was such a thing. Oh, this, this, this fucking set feels right out of the Adam West Batman with the abandoned <laughs> yeah. carnival. <laughs> yes. Kara, she witnesses a softball game and then emerges with a new disguise. This doesn't take long. She walks in the office and tells the principal that she's Linda Lee. From the comics, Adam? Yes? No? No. no. Not that I'm aware okay. of. Yeah, I, I've never heard this alias. All right. She makes a letter of recommendation from someone named Kent. Hmm. Linda gets in contact with Lucy Lane, the sister of Lois, because of course she is. <laughs> so two points. This is a thing in the comics that is an actual character. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but B, for a spinoff, I hate all these fucking conveniences. <laughs> with, between the sister and the guy she's dating. I'm like, you are... You are trying to be your own thing, but you are still trying to cling yourself to the established continuity. Right down to the fucking picture of Superman. Oh, yeah. Okay, we're getting there. Which apparently Christopher Reeve like took his autograph off that picture. <laughs> <laughs> now, interesting bit of trivia when it comes to Lucy Lane. She was going to be played by Demi Moore. And then, mm. at like the last instant, Demi Moore was like, thanks, but no thanks. She would no, thanks. I got Sam Hemley's fire and got Yeah, that, that's today. exactly it. <laughs> yeah. It was either that or she was asking for too much money. And the Salkines just kind of were like, nah, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, because the one thing you don't want to ask the Salkines for is more money. Absolutely. I, th- I think the Brando estate is still going after them. Kara tells Linda that her cousin is Clark Kent and that all her stuff is in the little bag she brought. She then sees a poster of Superman. See? Reva's here. Why is Kara reaching for him like this? It's not like he's her cousin. It's almost like she's in love with him. This is really weird. It's her cousin. <sighs> well, this takes place in the South. That's true. <laughs> it's a, you know it's that connection to home. Mm-hmm. Serena finds Ellis from Die Hard and figures that she will use witchcraft toward either getting him to love her or do a line of coke with her. I can't really tell. <laughs> what the hell? just happened to this movie. We don't know. <laughs> One, we go from the space, this really bad B-movie space opera, to the lesbian school for teenage women, <laughs> to the craft 1984. Like, this thing is 
The Omega Hedron starts blinking, which causes Kara's bracelet to do the same. She tells her professor that she's here on Earth with the rest of the class, and te- and Lucy tells her to not show off her smarts like that, or nobody is going to like you. <laughs> Kara deflects a cricket ball and then prevents some girls from turning the water scolding hot. While we have a shower scene in a Supergirl movie, yep, <laughs> feels like Porky's right here. <laughs> Did, did Stephen King write this script? Because nope. these are the, the, the classic Stephen King overzealous bullies. Nope. Oh, this is Carrie. Yeah, it feels, it feels a little like Carrie. And also, it's a good thing she stopped that cricket ball because it exploded when it made contact. That would have killed somebody. <laughs> Kara tries the finding logic behind piercing your ears and tries on a bra, which Lucy invites Kara over to hang out with. After which, which, after which Lucy invites Kara over to hang out with her and Jimmy Olsen. Well, that enforces Aaron Adams' argument that there are no bras on Argo City. Mm-hmm. Jimmy fucking Olsen. No, let, let's talk about this. So... This character, he's what, in his mid to late 20s? Sure. This chick is 16, 17? What the fuck is going on here? He's listening to Winger. It's 1984. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, shit. It's weird. Like, there is no ages given, but it's enough that it feels kind of, I don't know. It feels as slimy as the rest of this movie. It definitely does. And Jimmy Olsen was Jimmy Olsen. Like, <laughs> the dude, like the most he did was fall and freaking hurt his leg in a fucking chemical fire. And here he is hitting on <laughs> Lois Lane's sister. It's real. No, he's, da- he's David from Days and Confused. I get older, they stay the same age. Jesus. <laughs> she turns down the offer to fly over the city and hunt for the Omega Hedron. Meanwhile, Selena, she tries coming up with a love drink as Ethan stops by. I forgot that Ellis was in this fucking movie. <laughs> and he looks completely different here. Like, he doesn't have the mustache. He's, he's got some shirtless scenes. Like, what's going on here? Ethan tells Selena that at this point, he's enjoying the single status. And it's so funny seeing these superhero movies with these poor himbos written to be just foils. <laughs> it, of all the power that Cara Zorrell has and Selena has, and then with her magic Pokeball, that... The rest of this movie turns into fighting over this dude that's a freaking gardener. Mm-hmm. You know, suddenly Selena sh- turns into freaking Bill Cosby, freaking whips him up a rapacino <laughs> like over at her freaking Joker's lair. <laughs> what the fuck? I, I remembered none of this and could not believe what they were going for here. Mm. I was falling asleep at this point. <laughs> that drink is a perfect statement for this movie where it's a concoction of stuff that does not belong together and has an insidious purpose. Well, I mean, he could have been worse. He could have been me and watched all three versions of it, which I did. That's your fucking problem. There's a director's cut, which is two and a half hours. Uh, well, for the record, this movie's already too long. <laughs> the thing that upset me is when I clicked on this on my Amazon Prime and saw two hours and five minutes. I was like, oh, fuck me. Try seeing two hours and 40 minutes. Ethan drinks her magic drink as Selena tells him to sleep well and to wake up and drown in her eyes. Nigel, meanwhile, he stops by as Ethan wakes up and moves through this Rob Zombie house of horrors. Oh boy, what's going on with it's, it's Rob Zombie's house if Disney did the decoration. <laughs> Nigel notices a skin problem develop and is booted out as Selena notices that Ethan has left. She sees him in the mirror, and could they get any more fairy tale like And that's what I'm talking about here. Like, we have tons of mirrors here. Like I said, we have this prince. 
Well, she, yeah, she summoned the dragon at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they could have called this movie Mirror, Mirror on the Wall, who's the biggest bitch of them all. Oh, no contest. They see Ethan walking very dazed as Jimmy breaks all kinds of laws by hanging out with Lucy and her friends. <laughs> as we mentioned earlier. Yeah, it, it, he works a not-so-steady job because the most he can afford is Popeye's. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy sees Linda walking, and they both spot Ethan walking in a dazed state. But here's Jimmy to invite them inside. Why do they have to shoehorn this character into this movie? It bugs the fuck out of me. Just to have that connection. I mean, it's it's like having Lucy Lane. It's it's just having that connection as tenuous as it is. But ugh, it, I just don't understand. So the first person he lays his eyes if you're talking about fairy tale, the first mm-hmm. person he lays his eyes on, he's going to fall in love with. But he's walking down the street, eyes open, looking at yeah. people as he's going down the street. I guess you have to make eye contact for more than three seconds. <laughs> I guess. I mean, he should be in love with Joe over at Joe's Hardware. <laughs> Meanwhile, Selena's still giving seances as she causes a massive tractor to pursue Ethan. And this was... Yeah, I love how this turned into maximum overdrive. <laughs> Damn it. Yep, there we go. We got trucks. <laughs> This was the one scene I remember from my initial viewing of this as a kid. You know, I rented this as a seven, eight-year-old. Kind of into it. I, I was kind of not sort of into it. And then this scene came on. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. And yeah, I'll, bestow a, well, I'll bestow a compliment. This is funnier than any of the slapstick in Superman 3. <laughs> That's a backhanded compliment if I ever heard one. Swark. Yeah, but it's, it's open palm. <laughs> it's an open palm backhanded compliment. Swark is filming it like... The tractor's mouth is a set of jaws, and it's being filmed from the inside. And uh, the tractor doesn't stop and scoops him up as Kara spots it. The tractor takes out a gas station, and here's Supergirl to save the day. She prevents a power line from burning people and then flies through a water tower to put out the fire. She approaches the tractor as Selena gives her the name Supergirl. So it was once again given by the bad. Kara pulls the tractor's arms loose as she frees Ethan, who looks at not Supergirl, but Linda. And he tells her that he loves her. Yeah, I get very creative. Superman, Supergirl, question mark? <laughs> Which is funny, because it's almost identical to the way that Calista Flockhart names her in that CW show. Selena believes Nigel put this all together, and she has put together a little vendetta against Linda. She summons some dark forces and then asks Bianca to remind her to do it outside next time. (laughs) Meanwhile, Linda spends some time practicing kissing on a mirror as she walks outside and heads to Selena's house. She tells her to leave this place and do no harm. She's then thrown back. Now, we're going to eventually cover Howard the Duck. Uh, This monster... (laughs) Of some sort that is now on the streets as Kara grabs a street lamp and disintegrates it. This reminded me a lot of the what? What was it? Uh, the big tune monster. Yes, at the end. yes, for sure. For the first half, two thirds of it, I'm I'm thinking never-ending story. She's fighting the nothing. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> literally nothing there. She's fighting a storm. Yeah, yeah. The the dragon kind of looks like the big uh, wolf thing that he talks to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's Falc- not Falcorn. That's the the white thing. Yeah, it's the luck mm-hmm. dragon. Luck dragon. Mm-hmm. We then get a great line from Bianca. Selena is mad at the fact that she sent a man to do a woman's job. She tells Bianca to find out who Kara is, and she responds, sure, but I think I'd recognize the costume. <laughs> <laughs> she's having a good She's a good presence. Oh, she's, she's badass. I love her in this. She's She was a, a stage actress around this time. She had done a lot of plays, and uh, they brought her in because they knew that she could deliver these lines and deliver them well and that was a smart bit of casting 
Yeah, it's one of the only smart decisions you'll find in this production. I disagree with that. The Omega Hedron has once again summoned Kara's bracelet, as Ethan is once again where he doesn't belong, and Bianca points out that he's trespassing. (laughs) Ethan starts reading poetry and giving chocolates to Linda as he fails to pick her up and then asks her to marry him. Their romantic moment is once again interrupted by Selena, though, as she causes the fastest carnival ride in history. This thing is taking such a freaking time. I mean, let's, we got to admit, and just acknowledge, at the halfway point of this movie, this turns into Supergirl and a witch fighting over Ellis from Die Hard. Uh That's all the rest of this movie is. It's mind-boggling that this female empowerment movie turns into these two fighting over this dude with no personality and no abilities whatsoever. And Matt, I mean, at the end of the year, we're going to be getting more carnival fucking fighting because we're going to, we have dirty Harry at the end of the year. So like, I wonder if they filmed the same place as this was filmed. You've seen dirty Harry, right, Matt? You're asking the Clint Eastwood fan if he's seen dirty. Harry. I remember one of you guys said you didn't. Okay. Ganeri was the one who said he hadn't seen the majority of them. Okay. Either is bunch. Oh, wow. None of them. The car stops, and there's Supergirl, as Selena calls herself the ultimate siren on Endor, which bears the question, is this a crossover? <laughs> <laughs> I underlined that in my notes. I'm like, is she siren of Endor? Well, she's from the same coven as that witch lady from Battle for Endor. Yeah. <laughs> Ethan is stalked by football bumper cars as Supergirl builds a jail around Selena. She lifts the car out of danger. Ethan wakes up as Supergirl places the car down and is then hit by a rock in the face. This motherfucker (laughs) is like the most bumbling, moronic fucking character I have seen in a movie in a long time. Yeah, he's about as dumb and bumbling as Richard Pryor is in Superman 3. The funny part is talking about bumbling. If you pay attention earlier, when he gets up even out of that giant tractor, you know, with the claws, he actually bonks his head. Yeah. It is. He gets out of it, you know, kind of like the stormtrooper did in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Back. It's the exact same, like, bonk. Mm. It's, and it's in the shot. <laughs> Bianca suggests calling Nigel for help. Nigel, of course, is suspicious. Supergirl wakes Ethan up, and he tells her that he's worried about Linda. <laughs> she tries convincing him that, don't worry, Linda can take care of herself. And as she kisses him, he puts together that Supergirl is actually Linda. But that's not all that happens as he disappears and then reappears in a bed, all chained up. In their defense, hair dye is a more believable disguise than a pair of glasses. <laughs> that's true. You know what? A, a woman changing her hair makes a big difference. And if you fail to notice, you're sleeping on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky, you're sleeping but, inside at all. <laughs> but if Selena has this power, like, why didn't she teleport him before? Yeah, the end of this movie is a fucking mess because everything just gets all jumbled up. The end. Yes. <laughs> I think everything after by produced by the song kind. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, a fortress appears where Linda and Jimmy are. Supergirl flies a to the fortress of solitude, if you will. Yep. Supergirl flies to the top of it. She gets trapped as Selena kisses Ethan right in front of her, and Supergirl is then taken to the Phantom Zone. Again, just expanding on that mythology. Something Smallville would also do years down the line. Smallville, which, by the way, features a couple cameos by Helen Slater herself. And Christopher Reeve. Well, yeah. Supergirl then walks through the Phantom Zone and falls in some black goo. Meanwhile, Lucy starts a rally against Selena and gets seized by police for her efforts. 
this was some riot we have going on here. It's like when Superman went to the UN. It's it's, it's almost like that, where it was like it was just as uneventful as that was. I also love how they picket signs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Supergirl is rescued from the black goo by Zoltar, who explains to her what a horse is and says, there's no way out of the Phantom Zone. But he takes a breath and says, wait, there's one way, but she could die if it's done wrong, as she must confront her demons and define her destiny. Meanwhile, Selina, she plans her line of attack as the Omega Hedron once again makes noise as Zoltar and Supergirl are stuck in the heart of the Phantom Zone. She says she can't do it, but Zoltar believes she can. Selena, she sends fireballs their way as Supergirl pulls him up, but it's not enough as she says, I am with you, and faster than you can say Obi-Wan Kenobi, he gets stuck in the vortex. I mean, come on, that's exactly what this is from, right? I mean, she's losing her mentor here. Yeah, well, he's Merlin. Yeah. Merlin, sponsored by Jack Daniels. <laughs> but it seems to be the sacrifice Supergirl needs as she flies through and ends up face-to-face with Selena. Selena says that her friends will get the point as she reveals their cages are hovered over spikes. <laughs> I thought that was a kind of a good line by Faye Dunaway here, where she's like, your friends have the point, as their spikes pointed at their cages. But, but here, it turns into a, this is like a Wile E. Coyote section for the last part of this movie. Oh, I, thought the, I thought of Batman here, Batman Forever, which would come out, you know, 11 years later, but it's the same kind of thing going on here. As Selena once again uses the Omega Hedron to burn the floor... All of this is too much for Bianca as she says she'll be going, but Selena makes her stay as well. Selena summons a massive dragon and tells it to destroy Supergirl. It captures her as she says she can't. Good old Zoltar, though, says that she can and she breaks free. She creates an energy field around Selena as she's taken, you guessed it, through the mirror. Very, very, fairy tale like. Through the looking glass, Alice. <laughs> yes, exactly. If I was the Saw Kinds, I'd be yelling off at their head at the director. <laughs> Supergirl gets hold of the Omega Hedron and tells everyone to please keep this secret. She flies out and under the water again. White's the water thing is so fucking dumb. It's I'm weird. Like, yeah. Does she have the Legion of Doom's headquarters down there? <laughs> like that's where she lives. That's her fortress of solitude. The why she like I don't know if it's supposed to represent birth or what, but it's just stupid. I agree with that. Lights flicker. And credits roll on Supergirl. Adam, you were awful quiet throughout that entire climax. What are you thinking, sir? Man, I haven't been that disappointed in a climax since freaking senior prom. There you go. That just, there was, oh man. I mean, you talk about just really colorful shit of nothing happening, and I think it started in peak here with Supergirl. All right, I set it up for you. You hit it right out of the park, sir. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Supergirl? Adam. I like Kara Zorel as a character. I like Supergirl. I think it is important to have a variety of characters and diversity of characters and to show that anybody who wants to be in comics, writing, drawing, reading, enveloping needs to have a character that feels like them that they can empathize with that is their end of the story and with that i think supergirl is an important character that dc just dropped the ball so hard here that it set back female superhero live action for decades you know, if you want to see helen slater do well in supergirl Watch the Supergirl TV series where when she finally shows up on the CW, 
she plays Kara Zorel's mother for a couple seasons, and she does a pretty damn good job. I don't think Helen Slater really is the problem with this movie, because I do think she's bright-eyed and hopeful and is playing that fish-out-of-water, as I mentioned, splash type of character. And, you know, for at least an introduction, you kind of need that with Supergirl. However, this movie is junk. I mean, it's bad between the writing, between the effects, between the direction, the acting of everybody else. To randomly have, you know, like a girl's shower scene and then have Lucy Lane, you know, for a couple minutes just sitting in a bra in her room to this movie ending up being nothing about a witch and a superhero fighting over a guy. It's just so all over the place that it makes no sense. There are two movies with female superheroes that I had never watched until we've been doing this. One, still haven't seen yet. The other was Catwoman, and I can't believe how bad that was. I don't know if this is on that level, but this is this is pretty unwatchable when it gets to it. Now, for the first, like, half an hour, I was kind of going with this because I thought it was silly, cheesy, 80s, you know, 80s goofball. And then once it tries to turn serious in a rape-the-man, fight-over-the-man kind of way, this thing is its insulting. It's insulting to women. It's insulting to comics. And a character that is important as Cars Orel sure as hell deserves better. It's I, at the end of the day, I can't believe that this thing is two women fighting over a man. Like I just I can't get beyond that. It's it's unexcusable. This is a three, and I think I'm a little generous even in that regards. I like the idea of going to the Phantom Zone. I think that's where it peaks. But I think on the surface. That idea never even fully gets fleshed out. This is this is bad. This is really bad. Three. Three out of ten from Adam. Matt. Yeah, it's a bit unfortunate that something that could have been a real pioneering moment unfortunately revels in something that one could perceive to be sexist, where it's two women fighting over a handsome guy who has the depth of a puddle. So when you have that as the crux of your story for the, the important part, the origin story, it's very important to have something when you're doing origins beyond just someone discovering superpowers. First Superman movie does that very well, where it's finding the balance between both fathers, Spider-Man has with great power comes great responsibility, Batman Begins has the whole thing of becoming a symbol. There is a blueprint for doing origin stories beyond just guy gets powers, or in this case, woman gets powers and knows how to use them to fight evil. Not only is the evil she fight laughably portrayed, it's also illy defined with what she can do with this all-powerful device. And it's also just not pleasant to sit through. I understand camp, and I value it in a lot of ways. But I have not responded to a movie less enthusiastically since probably Superman 3. Like, I think this is just as bad as that uh, in a lot of ways. So... I totally get, between this and Superman 3, why the canon group got Superman 4, because they were looking to just buy low and sell low. Is it worse than Catwoman? That was the question I I thought about as this finished. I'm going to say no, because I think Catwoman is just an embarrassment on every level. This is close to that, but the one compliment I'll give that puts it above Catwoman is I don't think Helen Slater like, of the level of a Halle Berry, post-Oscar and post-Bond, 
she was not in a place to do something that embarrassing. And she's a newcomer, so I give her a certain amount of of slack for her, I'll call misguided performance. I share the same score written down as Adam. This is a three on ten for me as well. Three on ten from my two colleagues, who obviously have no senses of humor whatsoever. Now, this movie, I'll be that guy. This movie's a complete joke. It truly is. There's a plot that's laughable towards the middle. There is a floundering main star who, if they thought they were getting Gene Hackman, they were getting the downfall of an actress who was once respected and was starting a pretty rapid descent. Speaking of descent, the the main character, the title character, the one who emerges and goes back in the water to go home. Helen Slater, wonderful person, tremendous human being not a very good actress i believe after this i think i saw her in city slickers and maybe a couple other things she never ever reached a level of acting past she gets a little better than this i mean she she's wide-eyed in this and she doesn't really get past that in this entire film but she still like she's not one of our better thespians they thought they were getting a discovery in the line of christopher reeve they got helen slater and you know, she's okay for this movie. I think towards the end, she gets a couple really good scenes with when she's fighting this dragon and she's saving everybody. I, I think she does get a couple good moments, but people don't go to superhero movies for moments. They're going for a true super origin story, and you're not going to get that here. What you are going to get is a piece of mid-80s camp. And if you go in knowing that it's going to be the complete joke that I know it is, then you'll have a pretty decent time. And again, we're not doing Superman here. We're not doing Superboy. We're doing Supergirl. This is a girly movie. And I think when it goes for those girlish tendencies, I think that's when this movie thrives. I love her flying in this movie. I love when she's discovering not just her powers, but what what it's like to be a woman. I, I hate the ugly scene that we talked about earlier where she's almost raped, but at the same time, she's learning a little bit about herself where this isn't the grandiose, really awesome place I thought it was. This is ugly. This movie, a lot of people, including my two colleagues, say is ugly to a lot of people. To me, it's campy, but it's not terrible. I don't think it's even close to being as bad as Catwoman, which I gave a very campy 8 out of 10 to. I'm not going to do that for this movie. I'm going to go 5. I think it's worth watching once. I think if you haven't seen this, it's worth putting on. It's it's a it's a superhero slash fairy tale. You go in with that expectation, along with the expectation that this is mid '80s attempt to do a superhero movie for girls about something that they would think that girls would want. It's not a bad time if you grew up around that time. So, and if you haven't watched it, give it a watch. Hell, if you turn it off halfway, send me a, send me a message. I'll I'll take the brunt of it. But five out of ten for me on Supergirl. All right, so. That does it for the first version of our Superman reboots, reattempts at rebooting the franchise, whatever you want to say. Goudreau, we are going to take another break from Superman, although this one's only going to last a week, correct? By my count, yes. Okay, so what are we reviewing next week? Please let the people know, because I've been getting messages about this. I, I, I get a sense we're going to fight, first and foremost, which makes sense, considering the movie takes place during the Great War. After talking it over... We are going to do Oppenheimer, but it's going to be the three of us. The three of us doing Oppenheimer. I saw it a month ago. I did do a little bit of a rewatch 
about a week and a half ago for the review. And when the third person on this podcast said that he had seen it, he wants to talk about it too. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to wait around anymore for people to catch up. Three, All three of us are set to do it. We're going to fucking do it. Next week, we are going to do Oppenheimer. This thing's getting a lot of buzz. Hell, there's another movie that came out that same weekend that's getting even more buzz. Who knows? Maybe we'll do that movie eventually too. But I don't know. Adam, what are you expecting when we talk about Oppenheimer next week? Oh, man. I think there's going to be... You know what? This is going to be my first time joining you guys for Christopher Nolan. So, you know, the listeners of us that don't know me don't really know my stance. I know there's been some pretty big fighting when it comes to Nolan's works. And I don't expect that's going to change just because I'm going to be on the show. I think there's going to be some animated nuclear discussions that we have going on when we discuss Oppenheimer. All right, so Oppenheimer will be next week. Wow, I guess you guys are happy that we're gonna, not going to be talking Supergirl anymore, huh? It's a shame. I would. I really hope they find a way to crack it and bring, you know, with the with the new move of the DC Universe, I hope they bring the character back. I hope they find a way to do it justice. Haha, <laughs> we're getting a new Batman, we're getting a new Superman. It would make sense that we get a quality Supergirl film, and I hope that Guns DC Universe can pull that off. Good one. <laughs> All right, so until next week when we do Oppenheimer, with this podcast, I'm considering nothing less than world domination. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, once more, we've survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies out there, other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future we could have. And there will be peace. There will be peace when the people of the world want it so badly that their governments will have no choice but to give it to them. I just wish you could all see the Earth the way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. For listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Hey, Jim Bones! That's a bad outfit! <laughs> Join us next week for an entirely new review. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Mind over muscle. Edited by Garrett. Hey, that man's a miracle. Voiceovers by Adam. Ruler of Australia, activate the mission.
Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. You want to do Supergirl first? I don't think it's going to take it. All right. That's true. It's very true. Although it might. I have a lot of things to say about it, actually. You would. (laughs) (laughs) Thing is, she was coming off perhaps the campiest, worst performance she'd ever done where she just went all out in a bad way, a movie called Mommy Dearest. Mm-hmm. Please don't watch it. It is a waste of time. Oh, she's great in that. I'll fight you. Oh, it's terrible, Matt. She is terrible in that movie in Mommy Dearest. Oh, so you're talking about what you played, Crawford. I thought you meant the actual... No, you're right. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about something else. Okay. All right. Whew. Man, I was really... <laughs> you scared me for a second. Nigel, meanwhile, he stops by as Ethan wakes up and moves through this Rob Zombie House of Horrors. <laughs> oh boy, what's going on with it's, it's Rob Zombie's house if Disney did the decorating. <laughs> Adam just lost audio. What's going on? Is he back? I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right here until he gets back. They lost audio. I'm not gonna keep going if you can't hear us. Man, he was the one I really wanted to hear the Rob Zombie line I just gave. <laughs> oh, his internet went out. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I get very creative. Superman, Supergirl, question mark? <laughs> Which is funny because it's almost identical to the way that Calista Flockhart names her in that CW show. Is Calista Flockhart in that fucking show? The first season, and then when it left CBS, they decided that they didn't have the money to pay her when it went to the CW. Mm. Yeah, because remember, they didn't have the money to pay Callista Flockhart. (laughs) (laughs) That first season's a damn good season. Yeah, it's like The Flash, where it was good up to a point. Up to a point, yep. Ethan starts reading poetry and giving chocolates to Linda as he fails to pick her up and then asks her to marry him. Yeah, this is how my proposal went, too, by the way. Um, <laughs> you still owe me for that heck, by the way. <laughs> I guess it died of acid indigestion.